And the title of my sermon tonight is The Old Time Reprobate Doctrine. The Old Time Reprobate Doctrine. And the reason that I call this sermon The Old Time Reprobate Doctrine is that this is a doctrine that's been around for a long time. It's something that I grew up with. And amongst the old-fashioned preachers and what we would sometimes today call the old IFB, this was a major theme that they preached about that people would get to a point where it was too late for them to get saved. Now you say, hold on a minute, Pastor Anderson. I thought that's your doctrine. You know, I thought you came up with that. I, I thought it was the new IFB. No, actually, that was a major theme in the preaching of the previous generation. It wasn't something that they talked about a little bit. It was something that they talked about a lot. And I'm going to explain to you exactly how they preached it, what they preached, the scriptures that they used, and demonstrate to you the fact that this is a pretty established doctrine that the vast majority of Christians have always believed and taught. And I'm going to kind of explain to you what the difference is with what I preach and, you know, how these things go together and why it is that people accuse me of somehow coming up with this new doctrine, you know, Pastor Anderson's reprobate doctrine. Now, look, I'm glad to take credit for such an important doctrine, you know, and such a powerful doctrine. I'm flattered that people want to attribute such a powerful doctrine to me, but I'm sorry, I can't take credit for it because I'm just preaching the same doctrine that I heard growing up and people were preaching it before I was born and people are going to be preaching it after I'm dead. So it's not Pastor Anderson's reprobate doctrine as much as I would like to take credit for it. Okay, I'm joking. But let me just explain to you what we're talking about here. If you would flip over to John chapter 12, when we talk about the reprobate doctrine or when we talk about a reprobate, the word reprobate, don't let that word scare you or intimidate you or uh, don't let that be a hard word to you. This is not a hard word. The word reprobate is simply a word that means rejected. That's it. That's all it means. It just means rejected. So depending on the context, what that rejection is becomes apparent. Not every single time the Bible uses the word reprobate or rejected is it referring to someone who's beyond the point of salvation, but often it is. So that's all reprobate means. Reprobate and rejected, same thing, folks, okay? So the Bible says in Jeremiah 6.30, you don't have to turn there, but it says, reprobate silver shall men call them because the Lord has rejected them. So in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 30, the first time we see the word reprobate in the King James Bible, God is just saying, hey, these people are called reprobate because God rejected them. So they're called reprobate. Another great scripture on this is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. So these people that are called reprobate concerning the faith are the ones who are ever learning, but they're not able to come to the knowledge of the truth, okay? God has rejected them. Look at John chapter 12, verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. Notice those words. They could not believe. They're unable to believe. Sort of like the people who are unable to come to the knowledge of the truth. They could not believe because that Isaiah said again, 
He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. Stop. Who is the one who hardened their heart? Who is the one that blinded the eyes? Who's the he here? It's God. God, in verse 40, has blinded their eyes. God has hardened their heart. The Bible tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And let me tell you something. That's why they can't believe. Because they've been blinded, they've been hardened, etc. Now, let me start out by giving you, if you would go over to Revelation 22, let me just give you some clear scriptures from the Bible. We're going to get into the, the old IFBs preaching on the reprobate doctrine and, and some of the historical or old-time preaching that you heard on this concept of people getting beyond hope of salvation or going past the point of no return. But before we do, let me just give you some clear scriptures from the Bible about people losing an opportunity to ever be saved. And these are such clear scriptures, I can't see anybody arguing with these scriptures because they're just that clear. That a person can still be living and breathing and walking on this earth and be at a point where they can't be saved anymore. That's all the reprobate doctrine is, folks. It's just teaching that it's not just too late for people that are dead, but that there are some people, and it's a minority, but there are some people who are like a dead man walking because even though they're physically alive, they are beyond hope of salvation. It's a small minority, but there are people who've crossed a line with God where they can't be saved anymore. Let me just show you some crystal clear scripture on this that virtually every Christian that you would ever talk to or every fundamental Baptist would agree with. Look at Revelation 22, verse 18. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the prophecy of this book, or the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Now, how much clearer can you get here than when he says that if you take away from God's word, if you subtract from and omit God's word, if you were to tamper with God's word and create a counterfeit where you've added or removed, he says, I will take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Look, that means you're not saved, folks. If you have no part in the book of life, the place where your name even would have been is gone. Your part is removed. You have no part in the holy city. It's talking about the penalty for tampering with God's word is to be eternally damned. You can't tamper with God's word and then later you change your mind and get saved. No, no, he says, if you take away from the words of the prophecy of this book, he said, I'll take away your part out of the book of life and from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Go back to Revelation 14. So we see that the unsaved man who tampers with God's word, he crosses a line with God and loses his opportunity to get saved. Okay. Now, some people try to twist that into, oh, you're losing your salvation. Wrong, because these people were never saved in the first place. The people in John 12 were never saved in the first place. The people in Titus were never saved in the first place. The people who are adding to and removing from God's word, these people were never saved in the first place. They're losing their opportunity to get saved is what's going on, okay? Look at Revelation 14, 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image 
and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Now again, 99.9% .9 of independent Baptists would agree that if you receive the mark of the beast, you're done. You're doomed. It doesn't matter whether you're physically alive and walking around. Look, if you worship the Antichrist in the end times, if you worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in your forehead or in your right hand, you're done. And you know, the other 0.1% that think that somehow you can be saved after getting the mark of the beast are complete idiots, yeah, lunatics. Right, right. Nobody takes that doctrine seriously. That's a crazy doctrine because the Bible spells out the fact that when these people get the mark of the beast, they're done at that point. Game over, right? And that's what the Bible teaches clearly. Go to Mark chapter 3. So what's funny is that a lot of these people that you'll run into that are Baptists or part of the old IFB. IFB stands for Independent Fundamental Baptist, if you're wondering what that abbreviation is I keep using. Independent Fundamental Baptist, people that are of similar faith and practice to ourselves. Uh, we're an Independent Fundamental Baptist church. You know, they'll often, when you bring up the reprobate doctrine, they'll kind of bristle at it or act like, whoa, what are you talking about, man? You know, we got up until the last breath to be saved. But then when you stop and say, well, what if you add to or take from God's word? Oh, well then, yeah, I mean, yeah. And your parts removed. Well, what if you receive the mark of the beast? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, in that case. Well, what about if you blaspheme the Holy Ghost? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, if you blaspheme the Holy Ghost. It's like, well. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a reprobate doctrine crossing a line and you just, you just acknowledge three different ways that you can cross that line. By adding to, removing from God's word, getting the mark of the beast, or blaspheming the Holy Ghost. So what are we not understanding here? That this is a Bible doctrine, right? Look at uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 28. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation because they said he hath an unclean spirit. And you know, when you read this in the book of Matthew, it says he has no forgiveness, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Just in case this Mark 3 passage isn't clear enough, get the parallel passages, folks. He says you're not going to be forgiven in this world and you're not going to be forgiven in the world to come. Translation, you're not going to be saved. Now, again, who are these people? These are people who rejected Christ, the Pharisees. He did so many miracles before him, them, yet they believed not on him. It's the exact same people of whom the Bible said they could not believe. Same group of people, if you study the context. Now, let's get into some of the common themes of the previous generation of independent Baptists in their preaching that tie in with this reprobate doctrine. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Now, the previous generation, what we call the old IFB, they were big on altar calls, weren't they? Yeah. At the end of the service, they had the invitation time, the altar call. We don't do the invitation. We don't do the altar call. But they did, didn't they? And let me tell you something. I have sat through literally thousands of altar calls in my life because I grew up going to church, 
Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, my parents took me to church. They took me to independent fundamental Baptist churches and every single one of them had an altar call three times a week. So every year I was present for about 150 altar calls, right? And I did that for 20 some years. So do the math. I have been around for literally several thousand altar calls that I have personally sat there and been a part of. And let me tell you the types of things that I heard at these altar calls. These are the types of things I heard. Hey, if God's speaking to your heart right now, you need to respond now. You need to respond today. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Look, if you're not saved and God is convicting you right now, if God's spirit is convicting you right now, now's the time to get saved because guess what? God might not be convicting you next week. God may not be talking to you next week. You know, a few weeks from now, God's spirit is no longer there knocking at the door of your heart. And look what the Bible says in John chapter 6, verse 44. And again, we're talking about common themes in the old IFBs preaching and altar calls that tie in with this concept. John 6, 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. You see that? In order for you to come to Christ, in order for you to be saved, the Father has to draw you. And you know what? Right now, every head's bowed, every eye's closed, and as the pianist plays the seventh stanza of Just As I Am, God's Spirit is drawing you right now. God is reeling you in right now. And if you don't get saved today, you don't know. This could be your last chance. Look, if I had a nickel for every time I heard that, I'd be a wealthy man, okay? Also, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. How about this one? Isaiah chapter 55. You don't have to turn there if you would. Just uh, flip over to John chapter 16. How about this one? Isaiah 55, 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Listen, I have heard that hundreds of times at an altar call in a Baptist church growing up. Hey, seek the Lord while he's near, right? Call upon him while he's near. Seek him while he may be found. Boy, I have heard that over and over and over again. Another common theme was the parable of the sower. In Matthew chapter 13, where he said, When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart, This is he which received seed by the wayside. And they would say, look, if you don't get saved today, that seed that's been planted in your heart, it's possible that the devil will come and catch it away out of your heart. And next week, it won't be there. The week after that, it won't be there. And they would go on and on and on about how you need to get saved now. You need to get saved today. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And here's what they would say. While God is convicting you. You're under conviction right now. If you're under conviction right now, if your heart's pounding right now, if your heart is speeding up and you're gripping the pew in front of you right now, you know what that means? That means that God is convicting you right now. And if you don't respond to that, it might eventually be too late where God won't convict you anymore. And if God doesn't convict you, then it's just not going to happen for you. How, look, who has heard that before? 
in church. Yeah, and most of you didn't even grow up in church. Most of you didn't even grow up going to independent Baptist churches, but you've heard it before. You might have even heard it in churches of other denominations because it is so common because it's a major theme in the Bible, okay? Now, obviously, they will sometimes misuse the word convict or misuse the concept of conviction, but here's where they're getting it from often is John chapter 16. Now, the Bible uh, that we read doesn't use the word convict because it used the word reprove, but the modern versions like the NIV, they'll use the word convict or uh, other modern versions. So that's sometimes where people are getting that terminology. The caution I would give, because remember, I'm giving you the old IFB style preaching. And you say, you're making this up, Pastor Hans. Really? Because I've never done an altar call. So if I've never done an altar call, how could I be making this up? This isn't even my style. I'm telling you what I've heard. You know, I'm showing you the way they preached it. Okay. Now, the only caution with this conviction is that conviction basically means a guilty feeling. Okay. And if you think in this context, and, and, and the thing is, the only time the Bible uses the word conviction is where the Bible says the Pharisees were convicted of their own consciences. When the woman was taken in adultery and he said, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. They were convicted of their own consciences. What does that mean? They had a guilty feeling and they walked away. It doesn't mean they got saved. It doesn't mean that they were being drawn to Christ in salvation. It just means that they felt bad. They felt guilty. Okay. But just because maybe that term is being misused or misapplied or, or some people would abuse that and try to make salvation about feelings and feeling guilty or, or uh, whatever the case may be. The concept, listen to me now, the concept that God draws people to salvation is a biblical concept. It is a biblical concept. Whatever you call it, whatever the term you use, when the Bible says, no man can come to me except the Father draw him, that's what the Bible says. You must be drawn in by the Holy Ghost, okay? You must be drawn by the Father, and he uses the Holy Spirit to do that. Why? Because he sent the Holy Spirit to have this ministry. Look at verse 7 of chapter 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, and we know that's the Holy Ghost from this chapter, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world. That's the Bible's terminology, which, look, frankly, I just, I'm sorry, I just think the Bible says it better in the King James Bible than these modern versions that say he's going to convict the world. Folks, it's not just that he's going to give the world a guilty feeling, right? He's going to reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. The Bible says that he will reprove the world of sin. And it says of sin, why? Because they believe not on me. You know what that means? That means that the Holy Spirit has been sent into this world to reprove people. And you know what reprove means? To tell them that they're wrong, to speak to their hearts, and to reprove them of the sin of not believing in Jesus. Isn't that what it says here? He's going to reprove the world of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit has a ministry in the hearts of unsaved people. 
not just the saved. Now, we that are saved, we have the comforter living inside of us. We're indwelled by the Holy Ghost, and he has a ministry in our lives guiding us into all truth. But he also has a ministry in the hearts of unsaved people. He'll reprove the people who don't believe in him. He'll reprove the world of sin because they believe not on him. So that means that if an unsaved person is sitting in this auditorium listening to the preaching of God's word, or if they're at a door and somebody knocks their door and preaches to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit's job is to speak to their heart, to reprove them of sin, and to draw them in to Christ. Okay, this is what the Holy Spirit's ministry involves in the hearts of unsaved people. And the old IFB, they talked about this. The old time preachers, they preached about this all the time. How look, if God's speaking to you today, if God is drawing you today, if God is convicting you today, if you're under that Holy Ghost conviction right now is what they would say, then you need to respond today because it might not be here next time you hear the gospel. It might not be here next week, okay? And I remember many times hearing them talk about that guy who's gripping the pew, white knuckles, shaking, trembling. I mean, they were, look, they were very dramatic. Look, the, the altar call slash invitation was an art form, okay? I mean, just gripping the pew, white knuckles, trembling, and you know, look, I've never extended the invitation this long, but I'm extending it to a 27th stanza because I see that one who's battling with this right now. And you know what? I've heard story after story after story where this is what they'll say. Man, they saw that guy. He was gripping the pew, his white knuckles. He was trembling. And then here's what they said. But then they talked to him a week later and he didn't even care. They talked to him two weeks later. He had no interest. No interest in being saved. Why? Because he wasn't being drawn any longer. It was just gone. Sermon titles that I remember, God's deadline. God's three deadlines, right? You'd hear sermons like that about how you cross the line with God and you cross a line of no return. It's too late for you. My spirit will not always strive with man. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Go, if you would, to uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. It's funny. I was talking to Brother Segura about this right before the service, and he just Googled it. He just typed into Google something about, you know, verses that talk about it being too late for some people. And guess what came up? First result. It wasn't my preaching. The first thing that came up was BillyGraham.org. Now, that's not exactly a Pastor Anderson website. That's not exactly a new IFB, hardcore, independent, fundamental Baptist website. It popped up BillyGraham.org. Maybe it was just in his recent history or something. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm, but it popped up, you know, BillyGraham.org. And, and I'll just read you part of their answer on this super liberal, watered-down, evangelical website. The Bible also warns us that when we repeatedly turn away from God, we can reach a point of no return. The reason isn't because God won't forgive us, but because our hearts have grown so cold and hardened because of sin. God still calls us, but we're too insensitive to hear his voice. Don't delay. Come into Christ. Satan whispers some other time, but the Bible says now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. 
That's from BillyGraham.org, folks. This is not some obscure, radical, crazy idea. Folks, this is what Christians have been preaching for centuries. Look, it's a popular theme. It was, or, oh, sorry, it was a popular theme. It's not a popular theme now. It was a popular theme when I was growing up. You know, my mom's here visiting us tonight, and we went out to lunch with my mom today, and I was bringing this up to her. I was telling her, hey, this is what I'm going to be preaching about tonight. And she said the same thing, that she heard that her entire, she's been obviously in church much longer than I have, and she said she came and count how many times, and she remembered all the times that she heard all these things that we're talking about over and over again about it being too late and you got to come to Christ before it's too late. And they weren't always just saying, oh, you might die on the way home, although they did say that quite a bit too. They were often just saying, hey, you might get to a point where God's not speaking to you anymore. God's not drawing you anymore. But then she reminded me, you know, they also talked a lot about how they were all going to go liberal someday, she told me. Because one of the common themes that they would preach in that day was that, you know, every church eventually goes liberal and, and, and Ichabod is written above the door, the glory of the Lord's departed. And they warned us, you know, not to be loyal just to a church, not to be loyal to an institution, but to be loyal to the truth and how churches would be born and live and eventually die. I, folks, I remember hearing a bunch of sermons from Brother Hiles where he said that. I can remember Brother Hiles getting up and saying, one day, Hiles Anderson will be a liberal college, and, and I hope that one of you who loves me will burn it down. That's what he said. I'm not saying that. That's what he said. He said, when that day comes, and I, look, I'm not saying, and obviously, I'm not saying that Hiles Anderson's to that point, because he was talking about one day they're not going to be King James, one day they're going to teach all this heresy, and, and they're not going to believe these things. Why? Because he'd seen it over and over again with other churches, other Bible colleges. He'd seen them be fundamental and then fade away, be fundamental and then die. And he said, you know, someday that's going to happen. Because it's just the way the world works. Now, it's hard to believe that Faithful Word Baptist Church could ever become a liberal, watered-down, rock-and-roll fun center. But you know what? Give it long enough. You know, Pastor Anderson dies, and then some other new generation rises. Who knows? Okay? But I don't think it's going to happen. But anyway, I'm just saying. They did, though. But they, they talked about it all the time. How, you know what? Hey, eventually... Everything decays and dies and Ichabod and the glories departed and yada, yada, yada. So they, they predicted this would happen. So my mom brought that up to me that they did, you know, at least warn us. Okay. But the reason I have you turned to Song of Solomon chapter 5 is because in Revelation 3.20, there's a verse that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, the immediate context of this passage in Revelation 3.20 is not salvation, okay? Because a lot of times it's misquoted as, I'll come into him, but it's, that's not what it says. It says, I will come in to him. And the difference is, he's not saying he's going to come inside you in that verse. He's basically just saying he's going to come into where you're at and sup with you. And if you actually read the context there of the church at Laodicea, Revelation 3.20 is actually talking about Christians having fellowship with God and the Lord being present and powerful in their church and, and having communion with them, supper with them, dinner with them. That's the immediate context. Now, you, But you could use this as a secondary application of salvation, obviously. You know, 
Christ standing at the door and knocking. Let him in, right? But guess what? That's how the old IFB preached it. Oh, man. I can't even count. Again, several hundred times. How many have you heard those sermons about, you know, I stand at the door and knock? You know, you've got to let him in. He's knocking at the door. And here's what they'll say. Hey, he's not going to knock forever. He's not just going to keep knocking. Eventually, he's going to stop knocking, and then you're doomed, right? Look at Song of Solomon chapter 5, and this is a passage that I believe is teaching that. Again, you know, symbolically, the Bible says in verse 2, I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. I've put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I've washed my feet. How shall I defile them? He's, he, look, the picture is of the man standing out there banging on the door. This is a husband and wife, Song of Solomon. He's, he's banging on the door. He's knocking on the door, and he's saying, look, I'm getting all wet out here. My hair's all wet. My, I already took off my coat. I already washed my feet. I'm ready to come in. Let me in. Don't make me, you know, put my shoes back on, put my coat back on. I need to come in. I'm wet. It's cold. Let me in. My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door and my bowels were moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved and my hands dropped with myrrh and my fingers with sweet smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. Now, what is this showing? The picture is that she doesn't answer the door in time and he gives up and he's gone, right? What's the result? My soul failed when he spake. I sought him but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. Look, that's a, a sad story. This is a warning about someone who's not opening. When the Lord's knocking, you better open the door, buddy, because eventually you're going to say, okay, now I'll answer the door, and he's gone. Esau, the Bible says, Afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. Notice the word. He was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Okay? There are so many verses in the Bible about it being too late. This wasn't even in my notes. But Proverbs chapter 1 is another great one. It says, I also will laugh at your calamity. And in fact, let's back up. It turned there. This is great stuff. Proverbs chapter 1, uh, verse 24. And I'll, actually, verse 23. Turn you at my reproof. Now, what did the Bible say the Holy Spirit would do? Reprove the world. He'll reprove the unsaved, right? That's part of his ministry in the hearts of the unsaved. It says, turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you because I've called and ye refused. I stretched out my hand and no man regarded. What's he saying? I knocked at the door. You didn't answer. I reached out the hand to you and you left me hanging. You know, you did not accept me. But you've said it not all my counsel and would none of my what? Reproof. You didn't want my reproof. You didn't want to listen. You didn't want to answer the door. You didn't want to call out to me then. I also, the Lord says, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, 
Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Boy, that'll preach, huh? For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. Look, there comes a point where people's heart is hardened, where their eyes are blinded, where they get to a point where it's too late, where God is not knocking at the door anymore. They're not being drawn in anymore. They're not being reproved anymore because God just walks away. I remember Pastor Nichols saying, you know, Ephraim has turned to his idols, let him alone in the book of Hosea. I mean, just look, I can think of scripture after scripture after scripture that the previous generation preached because they hammered on this subject. They hammered it, okay? That it comes to a point where you can't believe. And at that point, you can call out to God, but here's the thing, calling upon the name of the Lord only saves you if you believe in your heart. That's right. You know, yeah, calling upon the name of the Lord saves you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? Right. So you can't just cry out as the bomb is about to fall on your head. Oh, God, save me. You know, if you're not trusting Christ, if you haven't believed in Christ, you know, somebody who's just about to die and just cries out, save me, Lord. Ah! You know, that's not, folks, he'll laugh at that. You've got to believe on Jesus Christ to be saved. That, otherwise, the call doesn't mean anything. Yeah, calling upon the name of the Lord saves you, but it doesn't mean anything unless you're calling out of faith in the finished work of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, and so forth. Now go, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 6. How about this one? He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck. And isn't that a great word, reprove? This is why I'm saying the Bible's word is better. You know, the Bible's word reprove is better than the, the NIV's word of convict. Okay. It says... He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. You know, you better respond to the Holy Spirit's reproof in your life, to God speaking to your heart before it's too late. That's a warning to the unsaved. Hebrews chapter 6. Now let me just, at this point, give my personal testimony on the reprobate doctrine. Now, like I said, I grew up in church hearing literally over 3,000 altar calls in person, many of which harped on these themes of now is the accepted time. You got to do it while God's drawing you. You got to do it while you're under conviction. You got to get saved now. God's not going to keep knocking at that door. He's going to get tired of knocking and he's going to walk away. Look, I grew up having that just drilled into me in church. All that. I mean, that was a major, major theme. Okay. But not only that, my dad would actually explain this doctrine to me personally one-on-one. -on -one. Now, my dad is a very nostalgic person, and he's, he's kind of a repetitive person in the sense that he'll, he, he would tell us the same things over and over again when we were growing up. There were certain things that he would repeat over and over again. So, so these are things that really became ingrained in us because he would repeat these things. They were, they were things that were important to him, and so he would talk about them. Well, one of the things that was important to him was this concept that we're talking about tonight, and specifically, his reprobate doctrine was derived from Hebrews chapter 6, okay? So like I said, you know, there are all these different scriptures we could go to 
all these different flavors of this that have been preached by so many different preachers, all these different styles of preaching, different scriptures that they would use to talk about this. But my dad's go-to scripture on this was Hebrews 6. That was his thing. And I can't even count how many times my dad explained this to me personally, one-on-one. -on -one. We'd be on a long drive or we'd be, uh, you know, spending time uh, riding dirt bikes or going camping or, you know, just whatever fathers and sons do where this would come up and he would love to expound this scripture, okay? And look what it says, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected. Rejected. Another word for that is reprobate. And nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. So this is talking about someone who has tasted the good word of God. They've tasted the powers of the world to come. They've tasted the heavenly gift. So there's a threefold reiteration of the tasting and they're made partaker of the Holy Ghost. Look, God is speaking to this person's heart. It, they're right there. They're tasting it. It's right in front of them. But if they fall away from that, to renew them again to repentance, the Bible says is impossible and then he ties this in as the person who bears thorns and briars and is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burnt. And of course, if we follow up and study the Bible about bearing thorns and briars, you know, this brings it back to Matthew 7 where he talks about the false prophets, the wolves in sheep's clothing. Hey, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? The good tree brings forth good fruit. The bad tree brings forth evil fruit. And so these are reprobates, these people where it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Imagine a person, and what does repentance mean? Changing your mind, okay? So if he's saying, look, it's impossible for these people to change their mind. It's like they're right there. They understand it. They've been enlightened. Enlightened means you get it. You understand it. The light bulb goes on. But hey, if they are that close and they're right there, you know, again, this brings us back to the white knuckles on the back of the pew, right? Hey, if they're that, if they're right there and then they walk away, you know what? That person can become a reprobate where it's impossible to renew them to repentance, meaning that you can never get them to change their mind and be saved again. And so my dad would tell me stories about specific people to whom he believed this applied. And he would mention friends of his that he would bring to church because uh, a lot of the churches he went to, again, they were not as big on the going out and doing soul winning. A lot of them were more like, hey, you bring people to church and then they respond at the altar call. You know, they're big on the altar call invitation. So he would bring friends to church and, and they'd come to church for a few weeks and they're interested, they're taking an interest, they're hearing the preaching, but then they would come to a point where they decided, you know what? This isn't for me. I don't, I'm not going to get saved. I don't believe, whatever. So it's like they were interested. The seed had been planted. It was being watered. The seed's being watered. Seed's being watered. 
And this is the way my dad would explain it to me. I'm just explaining to you what he explained to me. That then they'd get to a point where they were like, nah, forget it. I'm done with this. And they would quit. And then he said, you'd watch that person become way worse. He said, I would just, these are people that I knew, he said. And I would watch them just get way worse. Like they used to be just your average unsaved person, but he would watch them just become blasphemous, become hateful toward Christ, become just filthy in their personal lives. And he said, it's because they're, and he, my dad never used the word reprobate to me. He didn't call this the reprobate doctrine. He just said, you know what? They'll never be saved. He just, I don't remember exactly how he worded it. I think he would just say, they're a Hebrews 6 guy, is how he called it. <laughs> they're a Hebrews 6 type situation where it's impossible to renew them again into repentance. And that's the way he would explain it. And he would bring up person after person. So, you say, why are people you know, uh, associating this doctrine with you or why is it that, you know, you're accused of, of coming up with this new doctrine? Now, this is the difference between my preaching on the reprobate doctrine and the old IFB's preaching or the way I was brought up is that the old IFB typically did not associate this with homos. Now, go if you went to Romans chapter 1. They typically did not associate this doctrine with homos, but let me just give you a very simple reason why this doctrine was not associated with homos because homos weren't even a thing back then. Folks, and, and some of you that are younger, you're not going to understand this. Okay, I, I'm pretty young, I think. I mean, 37 is young, right? I thought that's young. Yeah, right? Yeah. All right. So, you know, I consider myself to be fairly young. But you know what? Those of you that are younger than me may not understand this. Those of you that are in your 20s and, and so forth, because you've just grown up where this is just everywhere. But let me tell you something. When I was growing up, even though I'm only 37, when I was a kid and a teenager, this was something that you didn't think about. It wasn't on your mind. It wasn't something that was just all around us being crammed down our throat. So because it wasn't on the radar, preachers didn't talk about it very often. Now, rarely, occasionally, they would preach about Sodom and they would preach about homosexuality and occasionally it would come up. But let me just illustrate it to you this way. How often do we today preach against bestiality? Virtually never, right? You virtually never are going to preach about that because it's so sick, it's so disgusting, it's so bizarre, and it's not a thing. That, that people are seeing or being exposed to or dealing with. So therefore, why would we want to constantly talk about something so disgusting and filthy and obscene and vile? Now, the Bible mentions it, so we have to touch on it every once in a while. Every once in a blue moon, we'll go to Leviticus chapter 18 and 20 and say, hey, you know, don't lie with a beast and, you know, whatever. Okay, we would rarely preach it because we preach the whole Bible. But, folks, is it something that we preach much on? No, not even... Me, who loves to preach out of Leviticus. Is, you, know, you don't hear me preaching about it. Why? Because it's not even a thing. Well, guess what? When I was a kid, that's how it was with the sodomites. That's how it was with homosexuality. It wasn't a thing. It's not anybody's radar. And guess what? It's just as disgusting as the other. They're both equally filthy and revolting. To any normal person, both of those are equally disgusting. Okay, so therefore, because they're both sick and perverted, we don't want to talk about them. We don't want to think about them. It's not on the radar of normal people. But in 2019, it's on everybody's radar because you can't even walk down the street. We, look, we were out to lunch today with my mother at YC's Mongolian Barbecue and the, just the filthiest 
pervert walked in, just totally in drag. I mean, he was wearing Daisy Dukes and had his nails painted, and it was just disgusting. Folks, that's why we preach on it more than the last generation, because it's happening. Yeah. It's happening. It's everywhere. We see it all around. And TV is pushing this. The radio is pushing this. The movies are pushing this. Madison Avenue is pushing this. And so that's why it's on our radar now. Folks, you can forgive the old IFB for not talking about this back then because it wasn't a thing in those days. Let, you say, well, when did it become a big thing? Look, it became a big thing around the year 2000. For those of you that are young, those of you that are too young to remember, that's when this happened. Look, I was 15 years old in 1996, and I had never seen a homo in real life. Never seen one. 15 years old, never had seen one at age 15 in 1996. Look, in 1998, I was a senior in high school. And in 1998, as a senior in high school, I did not know of a single sodomite. I'm in California. In a, in, a, in a rich area, you know, a nice area. I went to Wood Creek High School in Roseville, California. It's a pretty nice school. Uh, it was not ghetto at all. And in that school, there were about 2,000 students, and I did not know of a single sodomite that was a male sodomite. There was one gothic girl that it was rumored, hey, she could be a lesbian or whatever, right? But it was like in 1998, when I was a senior in high school, in a school of 2000, we didn't know of any open homos. Okay, literally, literally the next semester, the next year, okay, I showed up in class, 1999, and it was like everybody was, or I'll put it this way, Every single class, because I, I only had four classes because it was, it was a school where you'd, you'd, you'd do, your classes only lasted half the year, so you only had four classes at a time. Who knows what I'm talking about? So each class was like an hour and a half long, and it, there were only four of them. I had four classes my last semester of high school before I graduated. I had four classes, and I had a male sodomite in each of those four classes. That's how fast it changed. I mean, it went from like, you didn't even know about it in the whole school, to just... First period, there's one. Second period, there's one. Third period, there's one. Fourth period, there's one. That's how fast it changed, folks. And I remember in 1998, and, and forgive me if I'm getting the year slightly wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was 1998 when Ellen DeGeneres came out and as a sodomite on that TV show. They pulled the show from the air. They canceled it. Right. In 1998, it was canceled. And then in 1999, it was back. And not only was it back, there was a sodomite character on every primetime sitcom. You know, Friends and Seinfeld and shows like that. They started bringing on sodomite characters, and that's when they all came out at the school. And, like, look, I'm sure they were there in 1998, too, but you didn't know about them. They were in the closet. But in 1999, man, they all came out of, out of the closet. And so it might be hard for you young people to understand in 2019 that there was a time when you never saw an open sodomite, it, was, it would have been unthinkable that somebody would say, hey, you have a sodomite in your class. You'd think like, no, because he would be destroyed. <laughs> right? They would bully the crap out of him. He'd be so destroyed. No one would even think of 
stating such a filthy. So, so therefore, guess what? Out of sight, out of mind. This is why the previous generation didn't preach on it, folks. Now they preach on it a little bit, but not a lot. So when my dad taught me the Hebrews 6 doctrine, he didn't tie it in with being a sodomite. But he taught me that chapter. And, you know, uh, the churches I went to taught me a lot on this. So, I mean, I had a very strong foundation of this doctrine my entire life. So then when I turned 17 and I'm reading the Bible cover to cover, I started when I was 16, finished when I was 17. As I'm reading the Bible cover to cover, I read Romans 1. With all this old IFB preaching that had been pounded into me my entire life, everything that my dad had taught me, specific examples that my dad had pointed to, okay, in my mind. Then when I go to Romans 1, here's what I read. Look down at your Bible. Verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, watch this, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. To do what things? Those men with men things. Those women burning in their lust one toward another. He said, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them over three times, he said, to a reprobate mind to do those things. So imagine you're me, right? You're 16, 17, and you, you've been hearing this hammered all your life, and then you read Romans 1. Boy, it didn't take long for the penny to drop and for this to click with me and say, whoa, that's how they got that way. God gave them up. God gave him over. Because I already had knew this doctrine from Hebrews 6 that you could get to this point. I already knew from Revelation 22 that you could get to this point. I knew that people who take the mark of the beast are going to get to this point. Okay? I already knew that God's spirit will not always strive with man, that God's not going to draw them forever, that God's not going to knock on that door forever, and that if they don't want to retain God in their knowledge, then God may just reciprocate that feeling and turn them over to a reprobate mind. So I remember a specific person where my dad pointed out this person. This was somebody in our extended family, or a distant relative. That said, well, not that distant, but not in my immediate family. And my dad said, Uncle so-and-so will never be saved. This is a, a proclamation that my dad made to me. Uncle so-and-so will never be saved. And I said, well, why do, you, why do you say he'll never be saved? Oh, Hebrews 6, you know, because he said... He used to go to church and everything, and he said that your grandpa sat him down and spent an hour plus with him, <laughs> preaching him the clearest possible presentation of the gospel, going through the gospel with him, and he laughed at it and mocked it and scoffed it. He will never be saved. This is what my dad predicted about this particular person. So I decided to give the gospel to this person anyway, just because I just, you know, I didn't take my dad's word for it. And so I was working with him one day and I said, you know, I'm going to try to 
preach the gospel. I tried to preach the gospel to him. I spent hours preaching him because we were working together, doing electrical work together. So we were together all day, and I'm preaching to him and, and speaking the word of God to him, and he mocked it, he scoffed at it, he was blasphemous about it, and he had no interest. Later, and my dad said, this guy will never be saved. He's a Hebrews 6 guy, which is his word for saying he's a reprobate, okay? Then later on, we found out that he had molested some of the people in our extended family, cousins. Now, they're all female victims, but he's a child molester. He's a pedophile. Now, I'd already read Romans 1 at this point. I'd already put Romans 1 and Hebrews 6. You know, I'd put this together, folks. And so I said, this is what I said to the members of my family when this came out that this guy was a pedophile who my dad had already declared a reprobate years earlier. I said, watch, he's a homo too. You just watch because of, of what this chapter said. A couple years later, my sister calls me on the phone, my younger sister, and she said, hey, you can say I told you so right about now because you were right because I just went on so-and-so's MySpace page and it said bisexual. And so, it, there you go. You know, you were right. Well, isn't that interesting how the Bible plays out? Look, a good friend of mine. Let me tell you a story about a good friend of mine. And this is from the last couple years, okay? This lady, okay, she was raised by a stepdad. You know, she's got her, her natural mother, but a stepdad. But this guy, she, she knew him as her dad. I mean, this is who she grew up with. This is who she was raised by. And so she considered him like her dad. And, you know, he's, he's not saved, not a Christian, but he was a nice guy, good guy, good dad. She had no complaints about how he raised her. I mean, you know, she loved her. She considered him her dad, adopted, you know, and she loved her dad, right? Loved her mom and dad. Everything's great. But, you know, obviously it grieved her that he's not saved. She wanted him to get saved and so forth. Well, I've met this guy, okay? In fact, he even came to hear me preach one time, okay? So this guy would come to church every once in a blue to please his daughter, but he wasn't saved, right? Well, a few years ago, all of a sudden, he started taking interest in the things of God a few years ago. So basically, he started asking them questions about the Bible. He started to read the Bible. He was reading Daniel. He was reading Revelation. He was taking an interest in the things of God, and he was asking them questions. So they're thinking to themselves, you know, her and her husband are thinking to themselves, well, this is great, you know. Maybe Dad is getting close to getting saved. It seems like the seed is there. The seed is being watered. He's starting to take an interest. It seems like God's working on him. God's drawing him in, right? Seems like, you know, so they're encouraged by that, right? couple months go by, and he, he declares, I'm a homosexual now. And I mean, think about, I mean, it's like, what? Still married to her mom. In fact, they're still married right now, as far as I know. They still live together. But he just declared, you know, I'm a homo now. And he wasn't a homo before. But he became now a full-blown homo and he does what homos do, the homo lifestyle, which is just a lot of anonymous encounters. That's how they spread all the disease. That's why they've had an average of 500 partners, 1,000 partners, and all the statistics. I'm not going to go over the statistics in tonight's sermon. I've already done uh, those statistics in my sermon called The Sodomite Agenda Versus Reality, 
or um, uh, the truth about the sodomites, you know, sermons like that where I've, where I've gone into those things and, and shown all the data from the cdc.gov, which is also not a fundamental Baptist website, <laughs> cdc.gov, aids.gov. But anyway, how do you explain it? All, makes perfect sense to me. He's enlightened. He tasted the heavenly, you know, he's right there. He, 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 hey, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. You know, so it's like, it's just, it's exactly what my dad described to me of all these situations where somebody's like, oh, wow, so-and-so's getting close, getting close, getting close, and then they just go the other way. And now he's a reprobate. But isn't it interesting how him becoming a reprobate was preceded by what? Him taking an interest. And so that's where, that was where he got his last chance right there. Now he's just gone completely off the cliff. And obviously she's shocked and horrified and wants nothing to do with him. You know, it's, it's, it's very sad for her. And that's why I'm not even mentioning any names or anything because, it, you know, this is, this is a, a embarrassing. It's a shame. It's horrible, right? That's why I'm keeping these uh, anonymous. The, you know, although these are, you know, literal events that happen, they're just the names have been changed to protect the innocent, right? Because, you know, we don't want to embarrass anyone or anything like that. But the point is that you see this played out in real life. You see it in Scripture. It's all over the Bible. And the old generation, the old-time preachers, man, they covered this. They hammered it. Now, unfortunately, they didn't tie it in with sodomites usually because of the fact that it wasn't on their radar. But if those guys were alive today, obviously they'd be preaching against it. And if you want to know who... The spiritual descendants of those leather-lung, hellfire and damnation preachers of yesteryear are. You know who it is? It's me and Brother Jimenez and Tommy McMurtry and Joe Major. It's Manly Perry. Okay, look, it's guys like us. It's not these bunch of soft, watered-down Paul Chapel types of bringing in the homos and the pink shirts and, you know, uh, soft, watered-down. Folks, no. Just know. Okay? We are their spiritual descendants. Well, I don't remember hearing Brother So-and-So preach about that back. Yeah, that's because he was too disgusted by it to even bring it up. He certainly wasn't inviting them into his church and their Daisy Dukes, a bunch of filthy animals. Thankfully, that filthy dog at lunch today got his food to go. So, you know, but I was watching my kids like a hawk while he was getting his food to go. Disgusting. And I, I said to my mom, I look across the table, I said to my mom, I said, I said, can you imagine 20 years from now? It's probably just going to be like every time you go out to eat, this is the kind of stuff you're going to see. But you know what? The old IFB is too stupid to realize that. They're too stupid to realize, or, or they just don't care because they're old. So they're just like, well, as long as there's peace and truth in my days, to hell with you young people. Well, guess what? We're the ones who are going to have to be there in 20 years dealing with this garbage. We're, you know, look, our kids, we're raising our kids. We don't want to raise them up in a world where everywhere they go, they just have to vex their righteous soul every day, seeing and hearing their evil deeds of the men of Sodom. We don't want that, folks. That's why we, we're mad. That's why we preach hard. That's why we stand up to this. And you know, this old IFB, they, they want to lie and say, well, the reason we're not preaching hard on this, the sodomites and the reason we're not real is because we just don't agree with the doctrine. We just don't believe in that doctrine, that Pastor Anderson doctrine, that reprobate doctrine. 
you bunch of liars. You know, you, you know, and let me just talk to the camera for a second, which I rarely do. You bunch of old IFBs out there, you know that what I'm saying is right. You're just too chicken and cowardly to preach it. And you ought to step down and resign if you don't have the guts to preach what the Word of God says. That's the truth, folks. They know that what I'm well, I just don't agree with the doctrine. No, you just don't have any courage. No, you don't have the fullness of the Holy Ghost to give you the boldness to preach the Word of God because, you know what, is Ichabod Baptist, the glory of the Lord's departed because you have gotten so weak and so watered down that the cloudy pillar is gone and that's what the problem is, okay? I'm telling you people, this is a common theme. This is not a radical doctrine. This is not some divers and strange doctrine. Folks, the divers and strange doctrine is the one that says, oh, up until your last breath, everybody has the chance to still be saved up until the last second. That's foreign to Scripture. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's the foreign. And, and that's foreign to being an independent fundamental Baptist. You'd expect that on BillyGraham.org, but BillyGraham.org is telling you, nope, it's too late for you. <laughs> Folks, it's like the twilight zone. You know, when, when, when the independent fundamental Baptists won't even teach on this, and, and, and then you're Googling it, and of all places, the most liberal website comes up to tell you, yeah, there are people who cross a line and can't get saved. <laughs> the old-time reprobate doctrine is a biblical doctrine. Romans 1 is clear, but you know what? Romans 1 is even clearer when you put on the glasses of reading the whole rest of the Bible and you've spent your whole life learning about how people can go too far, then when you read Romans 1, it's like, pff, it's simple, it's easy. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you so much for uh, Romans 1 in particular. What a great chapter, Lord. I just pray that the scales would fall off and that people would open their eyes to what is going on in this country, what is going on in our world, and that they would just open their eyes to the plain and clear, simple teaching of Romans chapter 1 and understand that there are people out there for whom there is no hope because they had their chance. It's impossible to renew them to repentance. They are doomed and damned. Lord, help this doctrine to be preached all across America so that, number one, the unsaved would realize that they need to get saved today. They need to get saved now before it's too late. And number two, so that the saved would be warned about these dangerous predators that are out there that are so wicked, the Bible says they're past feeling. They have no conscience. They're psychopath reprobates, Lord. Please just help us to preach your word and never to become a dead church where we write Ichabod over the door because the glory has departed. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
and I'm a pastor at Agros Reformed Baptist Church in Gilbert, Arizona. Uh, we're a Reformed Confessional Baptist Church. So are you a little nervous about traveling with this uh, international criminal, Pastor Anderson? It's, it is what it is. And uh, having known you and gotten to know you over the past, you know, couple months, uh, I have no issue with it personally. My name is Steven Anderson. I'm the pastor of Faithful Word Baptist Church in Tempe, Arizona. And I'm setting out with a couple of friends of mine, Brother Peter Tremeles, Pastor Dane Johansson. And we are going to Cyprus, which is a Greek-speaking country in the Mediterranean Sea, right off the coast of Turkey. And our goal with this trip is to demonstrate that the Greek language of the New Testament is a living language. It's a film about 
the continuity of the Greek language, the Biblical Greek and modern Greek are not separate languages, but that the, the way the Biblical Greek in seminary, uh, the way it's taught, um, really needs to be revamped and reformed. go out there on the mean streets of Cyprus and we're going to preach the gospel to the lost. And the only Bible we're going to use is the New Testament in its original Greek. example of Greek literature that we have today is the poetry of Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and also other epic poetry of that era, poems by Hesiod, the so-called Homeric hymns, etc. Well, that is the most difficult form of Greek, being the most ancient, and the fact that it's poetry makes it a lot harder because poetry is always going to be more complicated than prose, okay? So then after Homeric Greek, you have what's known as Classical Greek or Attic Greek. This is the dialect of Athens. Athens is in Attica, so it's called Attic Greek. And this would be around the 5th century BC that Classical Greek had its heyday. Okay, so we've moved a few hundred years forward in time. By the time we get to the Bible though, 1st century AD, it's no longer Classical Greek, now it's Koine Greek or Kine Greek. And the word Kine in Greek simply means common because this was the common language of a very large portion of the world. This was a universal second language or lingua franca throughout the Roman Empire. So because it was a universal second language, it became simplified. And that's why Biblical Greek is so much easier than Classical Greek. So a lot of people will mix up Classical Greek and Biblical Greek. And they'll try to say, oh, Biblical Greek is so hard because Ancient Greek is a different language. Wrong, okay? This is all one language. The Reformation era, scholars, translators, etc., they did not just only study Biblical Greek. They studied Modern Greek, Homeric Greek, Classical Greek, everything in between. They took a holistic approach. They viewed it as one language and they learned the whole language. The men who made these translations of the Reformation era into the vulgar tongues and the, the, the common tongues of the people, instead of being locked away in Latin anymore, they were able to translate afresh from Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic right into the languages of the people, whether that's with uh, English, with Tyndale, and then leading on through the King James Bible translators or you know all the other common languages, the Dutch Stockton Vertaling, the Luther Bible. We we have all of these amazing translations. Now, how did these men learn how to translate these documents into the languages of their mother tongue? We're standing right here today in Constantinople, also known as Istanbul, and when all of the Christians fled, the Greek-speaking Christians from Byzantium fled from this very place into Europe during the Muslim invasion, they brought with them all of their Greek resources, all of their Greek knowledge, their own tongue that they had spoken from the time they were children. Uh, Fatih Sultan Mehmet conquered Constantinople in 1453 and many Greek people moved to Italy after, the, after he conquered Istanbul, Constantinople and uh, many of them went to Italy so they started renaissance in there and they brought all the knowledge, all the uh, belief of like all the Greek belief to uh, there that's why renaissance started in the 15th century in Europe 
they, when they learned Greek, they learned it from a Greek speaker who had just fled from Byzantium, who had just fled from modern-day Istanbul, and now brought with him all of his knowledge of the Greek language. That's the way they learned every language back then. Uh, you, you simply met someone who spoke that language, you shared life with them and, and learned their language from them, and then learned how to get the intricacies of the grammar and reading it and speaking it and writing it after that. For instance, Erasmus gives, a, gives an explanation of how he learned uh, Greek. He learned it from a Greek speaker, somebody who knew it and spoke it as their own living mother tongue. And then from there, once he got a, a foundation in the language of the, the, the modern tongue of his time, he then went into just extensive reading of the ancient authors. This is the reason that we're advocating this very method, and that method is to take this language as a holistic thing, not break it up into five or six or seven or eight different languages, but realize that Greek is Greek is Greek. The important thing to understand is that this is one language, okay? This is one language, Greek. We're not talking about five different languages. You know, there's Homeric Greek and the Classical Greek, Biblical Greek, Byzantine Greek, and Modern Greek. Five different languages. No, it's one language. And if you're really going to be an expert on Biblical Greek, you would have to learn the whole language. From Homer to Modern Greek and everything in between, if you really want to have the full grasp of the language and be on the level of the Reformation-era scholars that gave us great Bibles like the King James Version. Okay, those guys didn't just only study Kine Greek. They actually knew Homer, modern, and everything in between. Okay, that is the level of scholarship that they had when approaching a Bible translation. The guys who are translating the Bible today, most of them, if you handed them the Iliad and the Odyssey, they wouldn't be able to make heads or tails of it. And if you dropped them off in modern day Greece, they wouldn't even be able to order souvlaki. One of the first things we did upon arriving in Cyprus was to sit down the three of us and read the Bible together. Now, Brother Peter is a fluent native Greek speaker, but he's never read the New Testament in Greek. So we decided to start reading in the book of Revelation. He's going to start, then me, then you. Os ematirise ton logon tu theou ketin matirian isu Christu, os ateide, o prototokos ek ton nekron, ke o archon ton vasileon tisis. Ego imito alpha keto omega, o protos ke o eskatos, ke o vlepis grapson is fiblion, ke pemson tes epta ecclesies. Keto agelo tisem pergamu ecclesias grapson. Tade legi o echon ta epta penebmata tu theu, ke tus epta asteras. Idasu ta erga. O echon us acusato tito pnevma legi tis ecclesias, ke to angelo tis en Philadelphia ecclesias grapson. Tade legi o agios, o alithinos, o echon tin clida tu David, o anigon ke udis clii. O nikon doso afton, kathise metemu, and Os cago, enikisa, ke ekathisa, metatu patosmu, and to throno aftu. So that was your first time reading an extended passage in Kini Greek? Yes. And you understood pretty much all of it or most of it? or? I, I would say most of it. Like I said, you know, maybe 
uh, you know, there's a few words that, that you would look at and, you know, right off the bat, I, I couldn't tell you what it meant. Mm. But if you read the whole sentence, mm. you actually can understand the whole meaning and you know what that word says. So what if someone told you, no, actually, there's no way that, you know, a modern Greek can understand this. This is a totally different language. What would you say to that? I would scoff at that. I would laugh at them and tell them that that is completely, utterly ridiculous. Because you can understand it, no problem. Yes, any Greek can understand. Without any specific study in biblical Greek, you as a modern, demotiki, Greek-speaking person can just pick this up and read it, no problem. Yep, yep. I would say we could pick anybody on the, off the street and show them that book and tell them to read it and they would be able to tell us what it says. That's exactly what we're gonna do. <laughs> It was late in the evening, so we headed into the downtown area to evangelize. And we met up with a local guy named Andreas who listens to my sermons online. And the first person who was willing to listen to the gospel was actually a guy running a tattoo parlor. The Bible says right here, Tagar opsonia tisamatias thanatos te dejarisma tu theo zoe eonios en Christo isu to kirio imon. Kiri, ti medi piin. In a sotho, ideipon, pistevon, epiton kirion isun riston, kesothisi si geoikosu. So, what's the Bible saying that we have to do to be saved, according to that verse? Just to believe on Jesus, right? Does that say that we have to go to church to be saved? No. No. Does it say that we have to live a good life? No. Stop sinning. Just pistevson, epiton kirion isun riston, kesothisi. Uto gar igapisen o theos ton cosmon, oste ton yonaf tu ton monogeni edoken, in a pas o pistevon isafton, mi apolite al echizoin eonion. Amin, amin, lego imin, o pistevon iseme, echizoin eonion. Do you understand everything I'm saying so far? Tagar opsonia tisamatias thanatos to the charisma to theu zoeonios en Christo isu to kirio imon. So, charisma. Tisimeni and a charisma. Yeah, it's a gift, right? So, if God is giving us zoeonion as a gift, if He's giving us eternal life as a gift, it's free. We don't have to pay for it, right? Tafta egrapsa imin tis pistevusin. Isto onoma tu iu tu theo ina idite otizoin echete onion. Guy didn't get saved, but it was a good seed planted. What did you think about that encounter right there? Um, that, that was awesome. Not only was the gospel preached and it was revealing of the state of Cyprus, but I think the biggest thing for me is seeing that Pastor Stephen uh, talked from this book the entire time. All the verses were shared from the uh, Koine Greek New Testament. There was never any mention of, I, what book is this? I, I don't understand what's being said. Can you say it in modern Greek, anything like that? It was just, you know, read it. What does that mean? Oh, it means to believe. I'm supposed to believe in Jesus Christ. There was never any talk about it being some different language. It, that's the most revealing thing to me. The guy um, didn't even bat an eye. Didn't even bat an eye. It was as if, you know, it was his language, because it is. So, uh, it's almost like modern Greek speakers can understand the New Testament. Modern Greek speakers can understand the Koine Greek New Testament, no problem. No problem. No doubt about it. I had a little bit of doubt, now I don't.
completely, completely gone. Next, we talked to a group of eight teenagers, and three of them actually ended up getting saved. Panes gar imaton ke isterunde tis doxis tutheu. Tagar opsonia tis amartias thanatos to the charisma tutheu zoe eonios and Christo isu to kirio imon. Kiri ti medi pin in asotho ide ipon. Pistevson epi ton kirion isun riston kesothisi esi kel ikosu. So what do you have to do to be saved? Exactly. So did the Bible say you have to join a church to be saved? Uto gar igapisen o theos ton kosmon osto ton yon aftu ton monogeni edoken in a paso pistevon isafton mi apolite al echi zoin eonio. He gave his son so that what? Paso pistevon. Paso pistevon isafton mi apolite al echi zoin eonium. Amin, amin, lego imin. O pistevon iseme echi zoin eonium. Whoever so believes has life forever. Yes, whoever believes has eternal life. Tagar opsonia tis amartias thanatos to the charisma, to the charisma to theu. Zoe Eonios and Christoisu Tokirio Imon. So did that kind of surprise you a little bit? Yeah, it did. I mean, I didn't expect like, you know, I didn't expect people to get saved so easily just by hearing the gospel once. You asked me like, should I go up to those people? And I was like, ah, I don't think they're gonna listen, but you did and you know, thank God you did. Um, but yeah, at least, you know, I was really blown away by that. And I just think that, you know, those people obviously were looking for something like that. They were looking for, you know, they were cut some question in their mind, perhaps. And when they heard the gospel, that they they understood that the gospel was the answer to those questions. So yeah, I mean, it's just it really, you know, it's really significant that only three people out of like a very big group went, uh, came to here. It just highlights the fact that we have to, you know, preach to those who are interested mm -hmm. and you know. To not mind about other people. Yeah, because we st we started with about ten yeah. people, yeah, and then yeah, right yeah. away when I started preaching the gospel, two or three people bailed. Yeah. And then a lot of other people stayed and heard the entire gospel, but then when it came time to accept Christ as Savior, there were only yeah. three that said, "Yeah, we believe." And there was a lot of peer pressure for them to leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their buddies were kind of like, "All right, let's go," and they're like, "No, let's do this." Yeah. So that was cool, right? Mm -hmm. Awesome. We also wanted to sit down with Andreas and see how well he, as a Greek teenager, understood the Koine Greek of the New Testament. Then the Ava says, Pote tinkenidia thikin sta elenica. Etsi denine. Archi tu evangeliu isu Christu, iu tu theu, os yegrapte endis profites idu, ego apostelo ton angelon mu pro prosopu su. Os kadaskevasi tin odonsu embrostensu, phoni voondos andi erimo, etimasate tin odon kiriu, ephias piite tas tribus aftu. Catalavenis? Ne, ne, Catalavenis. Catalavenis panda? Ne, ine de Afrodiki abodin nean elniki glossa, but. Αλλά είναι πολύ παρόμοια. Άρα κάποιος που μπορεί να διαβάζει νέα ελληνικά μπορεί να διαβάζει και την γλώσσα της Καινής Διαθήκης. Αψολούτλη. Και ευαπτίζοντο πάντες εν το Ιορδάνι ποταμό υπ' αυτού 
exomologumeni. Yeah, I mean, I can understand it perfectly. I mean, there's no issue at all. Like, for somebody who speaks modern Greek fluently, there is no issue at all in understanding this text. What if I... No issue? So, no. so what, if, what if somebody told you, oh yeah, you know, biblical Greek is a completely different language. Not, what would you not, say to that? No, that, that's, that's false. It's not a well, well, this was a Bible college professor who teaches Greek for a living. Are you saying that he's lying? Well, I'm saying that maybe he, he's not informed or maybe he's, he's lying. not informed. So, but maybe he should get informed yeah. before teaching Greek for a living. Yeah. Do you think that'd be a good idea? Mm -hmm. All right, now I'm going to read it to you in the Erasmian pronunciation that they teach in Bible college. Arche tu euangeliu iesu Christu huiu tu theu. Hos gegraptai entis profitais edu ego apastello ton angelon mu pro pro pra prasopusu has katas has katakuase ten hadansu empras thensu. Do you understand any of that? No, not a word. If I was not reading this, like as so, if you didn't look at it, you would have no idea. What language would you think I was speaking? I don't know, just some kind of like English, some kind of, <laughs> <laughs> some kind of weird English accent, I don't know, or just some like Latin, I don't know. Latin? <laughs> so in, in seminary, I've taken multiple years of seminary Greek, and I have a lot of friends and pastors and everything that are still, and even teach seminary Greek, and they can't, they can't speak, they can't even understand or read Corne Greek. Or modern Greek, they can't say hello. My name is nothing. Yeah. There's some some areas are moving that way, but I think a lot of it has to do with the pronunciation method they've used. Yeah, which you, yeah, yeah. you you said you're familiar with some of the ways they do that. Yeah, they use basically um, a pronunciation which I think has been constructed in yes. the West. Yes. So it's not like the original Greek pronunciation. Yes. And it's used by no one in, in Greece or you know anywhere by anyone who speaks Greek as their mother tongue. Do you and think that it ever was spoken that way? Pronounced that way? No, because I mean, if it was, then something profound happened and everything right. changed like radically. But I right, don't right. think that I don't think that this was the case. No. Yeah. Yeah. The next morning, we went out soul winning door to door, and a lot of people weren't interested. But we finally found a young guy who was very interested, but he didn't speak any English whatsoever. So I had to give him the gospel 100% in Greek. One of my goals for this trip was to be able to do that by the end of the trip but I kind of got thrown into it on the second day. We got somebody saved with no English. Wow. 100% Greek. Nice. The guy had a lot of patience. Because I was, you know, I was stumbling and stammering and everything. Yeah, yeah he was like a young guy. Like, woo! We were, we were like so excited though that we didn't, he didn't know any English and he got saved. That was a miracle, because I was like stumbling through it. But I, you know, I went through the verses no problem, but explaining was hard. He, he communicated the gospel at the end to us, like perfectly. Like showing that he understood everything. And, and he said, it's a free gift, I can't lose it. And he said, if it was based on how good we are, the whole world would be doomed. So he understood that. Oh, he understood everything. Yeah, he explained it really well. It took a half hour just to kind of like stammer through it. And, and I even had to, I didn't know, I had to mime like, because I was talking about like parents spanking their kids. So I was like, what's it called when they, you know, the parents, they do this with their kids when they're bad? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then, so, so then it, it was like, uh, there no, I guess, is the yeah. word. So we learned a new verb, there no. Yeah. I spank. Yeah. All right, that's it. We got one, too. You got somebody saved? Yeah. 
Awesome. But we were like, you know, we were stumbling too, like, you know, just trying to remember everything. So was it all in Greek? Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Obviously. Yeah. What do you think? We have the critical text here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm you prayed with her. Yeah. You prayed with her. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So you guys got you guys got somebody saved 100% Greek. Yes. Yeah. Of course, you guys are Greek. We are. Yeah. <laughs> I, was still, I was still stumbling though too. You man, know. that's awesome. Yeah. So. Oh man, that's cool. Yeah. And praise the Lord. That was a great morning. Hi, my name is Stefan, I'm from Geneva, Switzerland. And I just arrived this morning, and I'm very happy to be in Cyprus. I've been a follower of uh, Pastor Anderson for some years now on YouTube, and when I, I saw that you were in Cyprus, I, I took the first flight. I was glad to see you, because obviously it's, it's difficult to see you in Europe these days. So you so, ready to do some soul winning? Yeah, yeah I hope to. Uh, I like to, to learn soul winning, because I've never been really doing it. And I'd like to start as a silent partner, know the, know the drill and, uh, and, and start doing it. Because I think it's the first works. We need to, to win souls. It's, uh, it's the fruits that we can bear. And uh, it's very important for me. It's something that has been forgotten by the evangelical church, especially in Europe. People don't do soul winning and uh, it's a shame. It's a real shame. All right, I'm Brother Jack. Uh, I saw a video on Pastor Anderson's channel. Uh, that he's in Cyprus. I live in Scotland, obviously the pastor's banned from the UK. Um, I've been listening to his preaching for about a year and a half. Uh, I actually ended up getting saved through his ministry, praise God. I've flown out here, so I'm going to learn how to do some, some good soul winning for the Lord. And uh, Definitely not going to learn any Greek, I don't think, but Pastor Anderson is going to sharpen up on his Greek. But uh, yeah, so here we are. And uh, I have some grub and very happy to be with, 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 with my brothers in Christ. So. things that I would notice here too is that you know the priests um, you know they tend to tell the youth and they tell the people you know of their faith that they can't question uh, the Orthodox faith and they can't question the beliefs that that have been instilled in them why do I have to go to confession why do I have to listen to the priest why do I have to have you know these good works or why do I have to get baptized as a baby and they it seems like you know the priests just tell them blindly that they have to believe in that and they have to do those things in order to be saved and when we tell them that none of that is necessary um, all you have to do is just believe on Jesus and you shall be saved and they hear that and that's like such a profound message for them because they feel like they've been lied to all this time and um, you know I just really want to make sure that you know when we bring the gospel to them that they get to hear the truth because I feel that 
after so many years, you know, that they just grow up believing that everything that the priest tells them is the truth, and they feel that the standards that the Orthodox religion sets for them is so unattainable that they just give up. And so when they hear that, you know, God's salvation is free, you know, as long as they believe that it's that gift for them to receive, you know, they're just so happy to hear that. So how did you end up uh, coming out of the Orthodox Church yourself? So there was a lot of things that, that I saw in the Bible that, you know, just didn't measure up. Like, you know, for example, you know, the Bible tells us that, you know, a bishop has to be the, you know, the husband to one wife, and he has to be sober and temperament, and he has to be able to rule his own house. But yet the priests uh, can't be married, and you know, once they've been ordained. And so when I started asking my priest that question, and I said, you know, why is it that the Orthodox teach that you have to be celibate in order to be a bishop? They tell me, you know, you can't question that. You know, that's something that you're not allowed to question. Um, you know, the other thing that you know, we talk about how, you know, the Bible tells us that you should call no one father but your father in heaven. And when, when you ask them, you know, why must I call you father if the Bible tells us call no one but our father in heaven father, they say that's the way it is. You don't question that. So, And that drove you to leave the Orthodox Church? Yes, that, you know, especially the fact that they didn't want me to question the faith is what led me to believe that, you know, this is not you know a faith that I should believe in because they don't take the Bible at face value. They're teaching things that are contrary to what the Bible teaches. And then when you start asking questions, they tell you that you're not allowed to have those questions. They tell you that you know you have to believe whatever they tell you. And if you don't believe that, then you're just being blasphemous against the Orthodox traditions. So today I met a man from Ethiopia and uh, he had a very similar story to share, um, such as the one that I have, my testimony. And, uh, you know, we were talking and he had mentioned that his father uh, was in the Orthodox Church in Ethiopia. And uh, he went to the priest and a started asking him questions about their traditions. You know, why do we have to make the sign of the cross? Why do we have to bow to icons? And the priest told him, you know, you do not get to question any of those things. And so that gentleman decided that this was not the religion for him because he felt that he was being deceived and he felt that because the priests were uh, you know not allowing him to question the faith in any way whatsoever and uh, he saw that it was contradicting the Bible so he decided to pull completely out of the Orthodox faith and he took his whole family with him and they all ended up believing they all ended up becoming evangelicals so that was you know very profound to me to hear that you know, somebody else would have that same testimony as I had, uh, you know, and why he left the Orthodox faith, similar to why I did. So, yeah, like, I was baptized as a baby when I, uh, when I was young, I was baptized in the Orthodox Church, but I was re never really a part of it. Uh, but then as I grew older, I started searching, I mean, and I started being interested in, in, in finding the truth and in actually understanding who God was, then I think that I mean, through that searching, the Lord led me to believe the gospel. He led me to the gospel and he led me to believe in it. And he actually revealed to me how the Orthodox Church is not preaching what, what the Bible preaches.
just had a great time out soul winning here. And I believe that the soul winning here in Cyprus is more receptive than the United States even. I mean, it's really easy to talk to people here. They're really friendly. And we just got four more people saved out there. And we were using the Greek New Testament for the Bible verses. And everybody understood it, no problem. And what was interesting is that even Romanians who are speaking Greek as a second language, but they're fluent in modern Greek, they understood the verses, no problem. So what was interesting, I was talking to three guys, and when it came down to the end, I spent about 25 minutes explaining the gospel to them. And when it came down to the very end, and I was asking them if they believed it, one of the guys wasn't even sure if Jesus died on the cross. You know, I said like, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you? And he was like, eh, I don't know. The other two guys, were like, yes, they for sure believed it. They understood the gospel. Everything was crystal clear to those two guys. So I prayed with those two guys, they got saved. But what was interesting is that the guy who wasn't even sure if Jesus died on the cross, he started like defending the Orthodox church at the end and saying, how can you not have icons in your church? You're being disrespectful to the saints by not having the icons. And, and you know, it, it was just blew my mind how he's not even sure if Jesus died on the cross, but he's 100% sure that we better have those icons and we better you know, honor the church and this and that. He had more confidence in the Orthodox Church than in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And that's where a lot of people are at spiritually, unfortunately. But they're all, they're all willing and ready to receive. You can have, everyone here wants to talk. They're willing to talk. Yeah, even if they don't get saved, yeah. they're at least willing to listen. Right. Typically. There's there's open doors everywhere. Yeah, there the, the door is definitely open, and so um, you know we we we've demonstrated once again that they have no trouble understanding the Greek New Testament. So far, we've had the most success with the young men, you know, in their twenties, teenagers. That that kind of youth demographic has been the most receptive to the gospel of everyone that we've talked to. So so that's who we're focusing on because that's who wants to listen. I thought it was awesome when you were sharing with those two Romanian guys and the one of them that spoke fluent Greek and English and Romanian, obviously, when you were showing him the verses, even he, and we've seen that yesterday as well, even he had no trouble understanding Koine Greek. Right. It was, it was pretty cool because you even asked him specifically if he had trouble understanding or if he understood it all, and he was like, oh, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I said, are you having any trouble understanding this Greek? And he's yeah, like, Yeah, because no, it, no, it no sounded problem. like he was saying something I don't understand. And that's when you were like, well, what are you, are you, do you understand this? He's like, no, I understand that. He was just struggling with the concept. Yeah, yeah, He said, yeah. no, 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 the language is great. I understand what the Bible's saying. <laughs> he I didn't just, even ask, he didn't even mention, like, well, I know it's old, but He I didn't understand. even mention, no one no. has mentioned that. No, no. Has one person mentioned that on this whole trip? No. No one has said, well, that's a little archaic, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. No. You said he was very receptive to the Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, th I, I think it's very receptive. And I, I would love to see an army of soul winners come to Cyprus and Greece and preach the gospel. You know, why don't all these Bible college guys who are studying Greek in the seminary, why don't they get out here with the Greek New Testament and win some souls to Christ? And uh, you know what, if they really wanna go deeper in Greek, why don't they use it out in the field? Yeah, I mean, the, the doctors, the medical doctors, the lawyers, they all have their little sabi or their little, uh, hidden language uh, uh, that they use to, to keep their power, to keep the, uh, they, they need a special, uh, special language to, to show that they are different and to justify 
their honoraries and to and I think for the theologians it's the same. They use big words, they use Greek, even though they don't speak Greek, but they need the special plus compared to you. And, so it uh, kind of gives them a one up. Yeah, yeah, on it's uh, yeah, yeah. They are, they are, they are a higher caste. They have a special knowledge that you don't have, and and actually it's a fake knowledge. It's right. just a, a barnish, just a, a coating, nothing, nothing deep. And right. for Greek, I think it's the same. Uh, if they were really speaking Greeks, I think they would be able to manage in, in Athens or on Cyprus or in real life, but they don't, they can't. Because I've even, since we've been on this trip, like just now, I forgot how to order some stuff and uh, I forgot how to order some stuff in, in modern and I said it in Koine and I got, I got what I asked for. So. Uh, yeah, you can speak in. They'll, they they'll, probably they'll they, they they did giggle. They did giggle. But yeah. They understood. No, yeah. But when they when they're on the read, written page, they never giggle at the words themselves. Be you know? it, because it's like if you said to them, "Wilt thou give me coffee?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. I beseech you that you would yeah. give me a little coffee <laughs> in my vessel. In my vessel. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. May I receive a small vessel of coffee? <laughs> they would still understand you. Yeah. You know. It'd just be weird. <laughs> yeah. And when these Bible college Greek scholars get together and talk about Greek, it's like a Star Trek convention. Like they're speaking Klingon or something, you know? Like it's just this weird language. It's not a real language that people actually speak, but it's just like this little secret knowledge that they have where they can talk to each other and they geek out on it like they're a Star Trek fan. But in reality, this is a real human language spoken by almost 14 million people. And that's how it needs to be learned and then you can actually use it in the real world and then you can actually appreciate it on a visceral level you know god created us as human beings with the ability to use language to speak to understand we have this innate ability that the animals don't have okay so we need to feel language when we speak english we're not diagramming sentences as we speak we speak from the heart and we speak by feeling we know how to talk and we can't always explain why, but we understand and speak our native tongue. And when you learn a foreign language, there's a watershed where you reach that level in another language where you just start to do it by feeling. And you don't have to think about the verbs. You don't have to think about the gender. You're just doing it by feeling. And that's true fluency, is where you can just read and speak by feeling. You get to a point where you're not translating anymore. You're just thinking in that language and you're able to speak and read just by feeling, intuitively. And we've all done that with our first language. And you get to a point when you study a second language where you cross that line. And man, that's an exciting place to be when you can cross that threshold and you reach that tipping point. And that's where learning a foreign language actually gets fun.
και εδώ και αυτόν ο δράκον τη δύναμη αυτού και τον θρόνο αυτού και εξουσία μεγάλη και είδω μιαν των κεφαλών αυτού ως εσφαγμένη θάνατο και πληγή του θανάτου αυτού εθεραπεύθη και θαύμασεν όλη η γη ο πίσω του θηρίου και προσκενήσαν τον δράκονταν ως έδωγεν εξουσίαν το θηρίο και προσκενήσαν το θηρίο λέγοντας τι όμοιος το θηρίο, τις δύναται πολεμής, τις δύναται πολεμήσε με ταυτού και εδόθη αυτό στόμα λαλούν μεγάλα και βλασφημίας και εδόθη αυτό εξουσία πηγήσε μήνας τεσσαράκοντα δύο και ένιξε το στόμα αυτού της βλασφημίας προς το Θεό βλασφημίσε το όνομα αυτού και την σκηνή αυτού. So, you can't understand any of that, huh? It's just all, it's, it's all modern Greek, like, it's modern Greek with just slightly different words but it's the same structure of sentences the same grammar basically so you can understand all of it you know you have if you have a couple of unknown words you can look them up so you can read this without a problem if you know modern greek fluently We just talked to uh, three young guys over here. They were from Bulgaria, but they're going to high school in the Greek language. So they've learned Greek as a second language. They were totally fluent in Greek, and so therefore they had no problem understanding the Greek New Testament. Two of them got saved. One of them said he wasn't really sure if he believed in it, but two of them got saved. So that was pretty cool. One of the points that we're trying to get across in this film is that you can kill two birds with one stone. If you're interested in learning New Testament Greek, you can actually read the Bible in its original language and you can win Greek people to Christ, which is a huge need. And honestly, this is one of the most receptive places I've ever gone soul winning. When it comes to talking to the young people, I mean, this is more receptive than soul winning in the United States. And usually when you go to Europe, it's less receptive. But here in Cyprus, it's actually more receptive And I'm sure it would be the same way if we went to Greece because the culture is pretty much identical. You know, the people here consider themselves to be Greek people. And so I hope that people who watch this film don't just have a negative attitude like, oh, I don't think it can be done or it's too hard or why should I learn modern Greek if I just want to read the Bible, you know. Uh, because of the fact that the modern Greeks are having a way easier time reading the Bible than your Bible college professor. And the disciple's not above his master, the servant's not above his Lord. If your Greek professor is struggling to read the New Testament in Greek, he obviously isn't going to be able to get you to your goal, if that's your goal. If your goal is to actually be able to read it fluently, he can't get you there because he's not there himself, in most cases. Obviously, there are exceptions to that. But here in Greece, Every teenager, you know, can understand it no problem. Είμαστε εδώ στον Όλυμπο τη Κύπρου που είναι το ψηλότερο βουνό σε όλη την Κύπρο. Και το περιβάλλον εδώ διαφέρει πάρα πολύ από την θαλασσινή περιοχή. 
It's nothing like the landscape down by the ocean. Up here, it is a proper forest, and we're surrounded by all these beautiful trees. It smells great. There's a lot of fresh air, and the weather up here is gorgeous. Now, down by the sea, it has been very hot because we're here in the summertime, and it has been scorching. That's part of the reason why we've been doing a lot of our soul winning at night. And believe it or not, the best time to go soul winning here is like 7, 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night if you're in a public place. You know, obviously wouldn't knock on people's doors at that time, but just going out into a public place, everybody wants to talk. Everybody's out at that time. In fact, if you go there in the afternoon or evening, barely anybody's around. You know, when you're going down the boardwalk or when you're going through the downtown areas where all the businesses are, it's pretty dead during the daytime and it just comes alive at night. And so we've been soul winning in the public streets around like 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night and everybody's out, everybody's ready to talk and nobody's even close to calling it a night. And one thing that I've learned about the Greek culture from being here is that Greek people love to talk. They are very social. And so everywhere you go, you see them sitting around and talking. And so that really works well for soul winning because when you walk up and strike up a conversation with people, people want to talk. And even when we're sitting at restaurants by ourselves talking, a lot of times people from other tables will come approach us and say, hey, what are you guys talking about? That sounds really interesting. What religion are you guys? And they'll jump into the conversation and then we give them the gospel. So a lot of times the fish are jumping into the boat. People are coming to us and striking up the conversation just because people here love to talk. And virtually everyone that we've won to Christ has been young, younger than myself, you know, 20s or teens. That's the demographic that is really receptive to the gospel here because I think that that generation feels alienated from the Orthodox Church. The, the preaching of the Orthodox Church does not resonate with them. They, they don't understand the traditions and I don't blame them for feeling disenfranchised in regard to the Orthodox Church because the Orthodox Church is bogus. And that's why we're here. If the Orthodox Church were doing its job, then we wouldn't even be here. The reason we're here is to preach the gospel that the Orthodox Church is not teaching. They teach a works-based salvation, total idolatry, total false doctrine. We're shining the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ here, and it's just wonderful to see young people responding. So the biggest problem that I see with uh, the younger generation is that they're just completely disconnected from the church. The problem that uh, the Orthodox Church has is that everything is about tradition. So you have to go to confession, you have to attend church, and when you go to a church, the service doesn't even give you anything biblical. The only thing that they do is they follow what's called a liturgy, which is basically the same exact procession of steps, the same exact repeating of same words, and the same uh, just whole entire process of just doing this liturgy uh, for the whole time. So like, you could go to an Orthodox church on any given Sunday, and you would see the same exact liturgy being done um, as they would do the next week and the week after that and the week after that. They don't give you anything new. They don't give you any feeding spiritually. And the, the youth here, the people who live this religion, uh, they go to church and they feel that just by being in that church and just hearing those words and receiving what the priest tells them is what they need to do in order to get to heaven. And so they actually feel that if they're not going to church that they're actually committing a sin. But the problem is, is that 
all of these uh, vain repetitions that go on in church are just things that doesn't resonate with uh, with the young people and so you know they feel that it's just not something that they can even accomplish and because of that they just go away from the church they're so far away from the church they don't even bother to attend because they've just pretty much given up on that in fact many of them even start to doubt they don't even believe that uh, what the church is teaching is true and they they start to lose their faith in God so it just really uh, is eye-opening for me to see just how starving the young people especially are to the message that we're giving them when we uh, show them the Bible they actually feel that we're giving them something that the priest doesn't give them. Somebody commented on me saying, basically we need reform in the seminaries, how this is taught. We should learn modern Greek first and then read, like study Kini after that. Because here in Cyprus, even, you know, 14 year olds at the skate park understand it perfectly fine. Tattoo. Tattoo artists understand it perfectly fine, all this stuff. This guy says, I'm reading more about the living language approach and the reconstructed Koine pronunciation, and I'm, and I'm being convinced that it is the way forward. That said, we don't necessarily need to know how to ask for a glass of water in order to understand the New Testament. Well, don't they want to understand that scripture about giving a cup of cold water into one of these little ones? I mean, yeah, it's literally in the New Testament, yeah. so, I, okay. Um. <laughs> so they're literally saying, they're literally saying, I can know Greek at such a low level that I can't even ask for a glass of water at a restaurant in Greece. I can still be able to expound and exegete the Bible in Greek, even though I know so little Greek that I can't even order a glass of water. Is that what they're actually saying? Unbelievable. Well, you don't know Greek. <laughs> what? I mean, that's the accusation. Let's keep, let, let, let's keep going. So some other guy chimes in and says, being able to use Koine conversationally isn't the point, which I never said it was. I just made a point that even when I'm speaking Kini to these people, they understand it. Yeah. Uh, nor is it necessary. I went through school with a girl from Cyprus, and she said that to speak Kini to her would be like someone speaking the King James English to me. Mastering the grammatical functions of the language for exegesis is all you need. Okay, but here's the thing. We never said to learn how to speak Koine Greek conversationally. What we said is learn how to speak modern Greek conversationally, and then you'll understand the Koine Greek. Because think about this. If someone wanted to read the King James Bible in English, if that were their goal, we wouldn't tell them, hey, you need to actually learn how to speak in King James English. We would tell them to get fluent in modern English and then read the King James, right? Because all of the contemporary English speakers in the United States of America can read the King James, no problem. They can understand the King James. Obviously, they have to look up the odd word. So we're basically saying, learn how to speak modern Greek and then you'll be able to pick up the Greek New Testament and read it and understand it. What would you say, because some of these people are arguing that all we would need to know, we don't need to be able to read the language fluently or speak the language fluently, all we need to do is have the ability to understand the syntax and the grammar of the language. Well, I would say that you can't understand the grammar and the syntax without learning the language. I mean, that's ridiculous. Can you imagine this in any other language? Well, all you really need to know is just Spanish grammar. You don't need to know how to speak Spanish. 
You just need Spanish grammar, and then you're the expert on what the Spanish Bible means because you studied Spanish grammar. I mean, that's ludicrous. That would only work in the world of Bible colleges and seminaries. In the real world, that level of language learning would be scoffed at. The fruit of such a methodology has obviously come short anyway. All these guys who are studying just the grammar and just the syntax and just looking up dictionary and lexical definitions don't read the Greek New Testament. They can't. So if that's just the goal is to be able to read the Greek New Testament and expound it and exegete it, yet their methodology has not led them to be able to do that, is it working? Yeah, because they're saying, oh, all you need to know is just the grammar and the syntax. Okay, so if you do their method, can we hand them a Greek New Testament and just on the fly, can they flip to any chapter? Are we going here? No. Can they flip to any chapter and just read it and tell us what it means on the fly? No. So therefore, their method falls short. What they actually want to be able to do is stand up in front of their congregation and look smart and say, oh, well, this in the Greek actually means X, Y, and Z. And they want to just be puffed up and look smart without actually having to put in the work to learn the language. It's, it's laziness. They want, to, they want to get up and act like they know Greek without doing the real work and the study. Because frankly, learning a foreign language is a lot of work and takes a lot of study. So they don't want to do the work, but they want to just be these smart guys that stand up and expound Greek. And here's the thing. We don't think that somebody needs to learn Greek to understand the New Testament or expound the New Testament because we have a wonderful translation in English and that's all we need. I mean, you could live your whole Christian life and serve God and preach and read and study nothing but a King James Bible and live a full Christian life and earn Boku rewards in heaven. You don't have to learn Greek. Okay, but what we're saying is if you're going to talk about the Greek New Testament, if you're going to read the Greek New Testament, you better learn Greek. I mean, imagine that, right? I mean, is that really such a radical concept? If you're going to expound to us the Greek New Testament, you should have to actually understand Greek. You should actually have to be fluent in the language. Makes sense. What a, what a concept. Yeah. <laughs> Here's my goal. My goal is to be able to pick up a Greek New Testament every morning and read five, six chapters and enjoy it. That's my goal. Pray over it, cry over it, <laughs> like amazing. Yeah, I mean, isn't that the goal? Yeah, amen. Their goal is to stand up in front of people and look smart. And you know what? No matter how much Greek I learn, I'm not going to get up in front of my church and explain to them what the Greek actually says because the King James Bible is beyond any level of Greek that I will ever attain. Because I'm, no matter how much Greek I learn, no matter how much Greek I study, no matter how fluent I get, I'm never going to know more than 54 expert scholars who spent six years translating it. So I, I'm just going to stick with the traditional King James text for preaching and teaching the Word of God. You know, because that's what people speak is English, right? We're not saying that everybody needs to learn Greek. In fact, they're the ones that are saying that. But then when they say learn Greek, they're saying, oh, just learn the grammar and syntax. What they're really saying is be at the mercy of a few guys who have written the grammar books, who've written the lexicons, who've written these Greek tools, and just be at their mercy, and they're going to tell you what it means, and shut up and believe it because we said so. And what we're saying is, you know, you can actually verify these things by learning Greek yourself and actually knowing it. The thing is, that seems very much like the papacy to me, to be 
to be completely honest. Kafta egrapsa i min tispistevusin isto onoma tu jutu theu ina idite otizoin echeteonion ki ina pistevite isto onoma tu jutu theu. Pandes gad imarton ke isterunde tis doxis tu theu. Wow, you speak Greek very well. Well, ev charisto poli. Kathos egrapta oti uk esti dikeos uze is. Ostis gad olon ton nomon tirisi. Tesi ve en eni, riegonet pandon enohos. Ogad ipon mi mihefsis, ipeke mi fonefsis, ide u mihefsis, fonefsis de, riegonas paravatis nomo. Imaste oli enohi. How do you know Greek so well? Just from reading the Bible. Bravo. Yeah. Because it's not easy. No, it's not. Veni Nefkolo. My friend, she lives here 35 years. She's my Irish friend. Que den mi laia linica? No, I can ask my simple. To de mi ergazo meno, pistevon di de epiton dikeunda ton asevi, logizete i pistis aptu is dikeosinin. Tigar hari tieste sesos meni Διάτις πίστεως και τούτο ουκ εξ ημών, θεούτο δώρον, ουκ εξ έργων είναι μη της καυχίσιτε. She didn't end up getting saved, but it was another good seed planted. Thanks for having us, inviting us in. Nice to meet you. My name is Melena Stefano. Stefano, she's a... Melena Dane. Dane? Yeah, Heropoli. Heropoli. Alright, Heropoli Stowe. So we're here in Paphos, and this is where a very important Bible story took place in Acts chapter 13. Now, if you remember, Acts chapter 13 is where Paul and Barnabas are first sent out as missionaries from that church in Antioch. And when they're sent out as missionaries, the first thing they do, they head to Seleucia, and then boom, they sail to the Isle of Cyprus. And so the first Bible stories involving that missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas take place right here on the island of Cyprus. Uti men un ek pefthendes ipotupnevmatos tu aiu kartilthon istin selefkian ekithen te apeplesan istin Kipron. Ke genomeni en salamini katingelon ton logon tu theu en de synagoges ton judeon ihon de ke ioanin ipiretin diothondes de tin mison achripafu Evron tinamagon, pseudoprofitin, judeon, o onoma varisus, os in sin to antipato Sergio Pablo, Andri sineto, utos proscalesamenos varnavan kesavlon epezitisen acuse ton logon tuteu, 
antistato de aptis elimas o magos, utu gar metermineveta to onomavtu, ziton diastrepse ton antipaton apotis pisteos. Savlos de o que Pavlos plis this penevmatos agiu, que atenisas is avton ipen, o plinis pandos dolu, que pasis ragiorgias, ye diavolu, ekthre pasis de que osinis, upavsi diastrefon, tas odus kiriu tas eftias. Kenin idu, hir tu kiriu epise, que esi tiflos, mi vlepon ton ilion achrikeru. Padachrima de pepesen epafton achlis keskotos, que periagon eziti hiragogus. Tote idon o antipatos to yegonos epistefsen, eclisomenos epitididahi tukiriu. So there's a man by the name of Sergius Paulus, and he's the deputy of the country, so he's a political ruler here. And the Bible says he desired to hear the word of God. He wanted to hear the gospel. And so he summons Paul and Barnabas to come and evangelize him, preach the gospel to him. But when they go to give him the gospel, there's this other guy there named Elimus, and he was a false prophet, a sorcerer, and a Jew. So this is three strikes. I mean, he's a very bad guy. And he's there opposing, resisting, contradicting what the Apostle Paul is preaching. And I've had this happen to me many times out soul winning, where I'm giving the gospel to someone receptive, and then some bozo comes along and just kind of creates a lot of confusion, contradicts you, speaks against the word of God, and just ruins it. So that's what was happening. Well, the Apostle Paul just lays into this guy and calls him a child of the devil and says, Wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And then he strikes him with blindness. So this is a miracle that the Apostle Paul was able to do where he strikes the man with blindness. And when that happened, of course, Sergius Paulus was amazed by that. The Bible says he believed and then it says that he was astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. And I've always loved that phrase because even though he'd seen this amazing miracle, the thing that really astonished him was the doctrine. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest miracle that there is. I mean, the doctrine of the word of God is what really changes lives. You know, the miracles are cool, but the doctrine of the Lord is the thing that actually is the most life-changing. So here we are this week on the island of Cyprus, and we are picking up where Paul and Barnabas left off. As many others have done throughout the centuries, today in 2019, we are continuing to preach the gospel on the island of Cyprus. Yeah, so being a Bible-believing Christian in Europe is definitely a very lonely thing because there are very little Christians here. You feel like you're alone many times. Like in Cyprus, there are no local churches which are right on the gospel and which are, you know, preaching the word of God as they should. Um, and there is practically no fellowship, unfortunately. So it's definitely a hard thing to be a Christian in Europe, but I think that slowly slowly with, with the internet I mean things are starting to improve because 
people are listening to preaching and many of them are converting to Christianity. That's how I converted to Christianity. So I think that this is something definitely something to look forward to and that, well, we have a lot of blessings by God. I mean, there are Pastor Anderson is here and we have great fellowship here. So I think that although things are hard right now in Europe for Christians, that they will improve in the future. We would love for, for people from America who are Bible-believing Christians to come to Cyprus and Greece, and especially people who study Greek at a Bible school, come here, preach the gospel and, you know, have fellowship with us. That would be amazing because, you know, we need that very much here. All right, so being a Bible-believing Christian in Europe is basically like being a needle in a haystack. Um, we need help. We need revival in Europe. We need uh, an army of soul winners uh, to get together, band together as brethren, and start evangelizing, start getting serious about soul winning. I've come out from Scotland to meet Pastor Anderson uh, with the intention of becoming more adept at soul winning. My friends at home who are unsaved, when I give them the gospel, they don't want to hear it. And what I tell them is, listen, if you believed in God, okay, you believe in the Bible, you believe there is a hell, and you will go there if you don't have Jesus Christ. And I, if I was to not tell you that, how, how hateful would I be? What kind of friend would I be? What kind of person would I be? So we need to have this mentality all together, band together to create revival. People are not going to get saved if we're not out soul winning. The reason that we've come here to Cyprus, the reason why I make this film, and the reason I think this film is so important, is that it gets us out of our academic circles. It gets us out of just thinking of the scriptures, and especially in studying the Greek New Testament. That it's not just a exercise in knowledge and theology and debate, but it's a practical weapon and a tool, no matter what language it's translated into. That we're supposed to get out here, and being here in Cyprus has really taught me over the past week that people are still in need of the gospel everywhere we go. We get stuck in our little groups, our little cliques, our theological debates online and in person with people, uh, with other believers, when we could be out here winning souls for Christ, whether it's in Cyprus or otherwise. But to all the guys out there that are studying Greek, especially my Reformed brethren, we need to bring this into the field, whether it's in our preaching, our, our pastoring, but especially even out here in Cyprus and in Greece and other Greek-speaking places, they can understand this very book. And as we study it and as we learn how to speak the language, we can come here and win people to Christ. We can fulfill the Great Commission simply with this book. And it's no longer just an uh, idea and it's no longer just a debate. It's a, no longer a theory or a language to be parsed, but it's pointing us to the person of Christ. And it's pointing us to what we're supposed to be doing and fulfilling the Great Commission of Christ. Now, I know that there are going to be some people who watch this film and they will just refuse to acknowledge what we've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, that modern Greek and Koine Greek are mutually intelligible. But to those people, I would say, you need to do some serious introspection and ask yourself, why are you even learning Greek? Why even study the Bible for that matter? The Bible says, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And so if your desire is just to learn Greek, as a mental exercise or to be puffed up or to stand up behind your pulpit and look so smart by going back to this Greek word and that word to try to impress people, 
You know, you can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but if you have not charity, you are nothing. This film is about taking the Greek New Testament and using it, not just enshrining it, not just dissecting it and looking at it with a microscope, but getting out there in the field and using it to win people to Christ. There are precious people all over Europe that are dying and going to hell. Who's going to reach them with the gospel? And even just in Greece and Cyprus alone, there are over 12 million people, many of which are very receptive to the gospel if someone would just bring it to them. If they would hear the gospel, they would get saved. So it's time for you Bible college students out there to take a field trip and to get out there and use Greek. Because the Bible talks about strong meat belonging to those who are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We learn the Word of God by using the Word of God. And you're still on the milk if you're not out doing the work. The one who understands the Bible is the one who does the work of God. There are the forgetful hearers and there are the doers of the work. So it's time to look in the mirror, look into that perfect law of liberty and understand why we are even reading the Bible, whether in English or Greek, why are we even learning the Bible in the first place? It's so that we can be equipped unto every good work. Now, I'm going to have to give you guys um, some Greek tonight. Um, and it's not because I want to show off, because I'm not that good anyways. Because the Greek word rendered temptation, prosmos, as I've shared on many occasions, is defined by Strong's, and you can look it up for yourself. Somebody asked me, where do you get these definitions? I looked it up and, well, just look up Look it up in Strong's. But you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to make use of the numbering system. So the numbers are very important for word studies, accurate word studies using Greek and Hebrew without having to learn Greek and Hebrew. The Bible says we're his workmanship. That word in Greek is the word poema. It means poem. We get the word poem from it. You are God's masterpiece. You are God's poem. You are God's work of art. There's nobody like you. Quit trying to be somebody else. But I want you to know in the New Testament, the word worship is defined in the Greek language as this, licking the hands of the master like a dog. A dog licking the master's hands. Dogs know how to worship. The English word preaching in the New Testament translates almost always to Greek words, euangelizomai and keruso. Euangelizomai is a speaking of one who's bringing good news of great joy, right? <laughs> 
The preacher is euangelizomizing all the time, even if he's talking about hell. He ran. See that? It's a Greek word that means sprint. Middle Eastern noblemen don't sprint. Old men don't sprint. Middle Eastern noblemen don't run, they glide. Like a sort of Arabic moonwalk. The word is drachme. It means a precious silver. It wasn't just an iron or a base metal, but it was a valuable silver. The word hell means Hades or Sheol. It doesn't necessarily mean fire. It simply means the unseen state of the dead. Don't let anybody flim-flam you. That's what it meant in the Old Testament. It meant that's where the dead are, that's where they go, and we can't see them. So they go to Sheol. In the Old Testament, they go to Hades in the New. Hades in the New Testament is far more pagan in thought than Sheol of the Old Testament. Obviously, we saw on the last program that Stephen Anderson claims to read the Greek New Testament like cover to cover and all the rest of this stuff. I don't believe it for a moment. You know, the Bible's really clear on salvation. It's not based on how good you are. A lot of people think they're pretty good, you know, and yeah, they're going to get to heaven because they're pretty good. But the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says, that as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. I'm not righteous, you're not righteous. And if it were our goodness that would get us into heaven, none of us would be going. Because the Bible even says in Revelation 21, 8, it says, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and sorcerers and whoremongers and idolaters, and listen to this, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I've lied before. Everybody's lied before. So we've all sinned, and we've done stuff worse than lying, let's face it. We all deserve hell. But the Bible says, but God commanded his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so Jesus Christ, because he loves us, came to this earth. The Bible says he was God manifest in the flesh. God basically took on human form. He lived a sinless life. He did not commit any sin. And of course, they beat him and spit on him and, and nailed him to the cross. The Bible says that when he was on that cross, he himself bare our sins in his own body on the tree. So every sin you've ever done, every sin I've ever done, it was as if Jesus had done it. He was being punished for our sins. And then, of course, they took his body when he died. They took his body and buried it in the tomb. And his soul went down to hell for three days and three nights, Acts 2.31. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. He showed unto the disciples the holes in his hands. And the Bible's really clear that Jesus did die for everybody. It says that he died not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But there's something that we must do to be saved. The Bible says, it has that question in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And that's it. He didn't say join a church and you'll be saved, get baptized and you'll be saved, live a good life and you'll be saved, repent of all your sins and you'll be saved. No, he said believe.
and even the most famous verse in the whole Bible that's written on the bottom, I mean, the, the reference is written on the bottom of the cup at In-N-Out Burger. I mean, it's so famous, everybody's heard of it, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And everlasting means everlasting, it means forever. And Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. The Bible says in John 6, 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. So if you believe on Jesus Christ, the Bible says you have everlasting life. You're going to live forever. You can't lose your salvation. It's eternal. It's everlasting. Once you're saved, once you believe on him, you're saved forever. And no matter what, you can never lose your salvation. Even if I were to go out and commit some awful sin, God will punish me for it on this earth. If I went out and killed somebody today, you know, God's going to make sure I get punished. I'm going to prison or, or far worse or the death penalty. Whatever this earth punishes me, and God's going to make sure I get punished even more. But I'm not going to hell. There's nothing I can do to go to hell because I'm saved. And if I went to hell, God lied because he promised that whoever believeth in him has everlasting life. And he said, whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. That's why there are a lot of examples of people in the Bible who did some really bad stuff, yet they made it to heaven. How? Because they were so good? No, it's because they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Their sins are forgiven. Other people who may have lived a better life in the world's eyes, or maybe even really they lived a better life, they don't believe in Christ. They're going to have to go to hell to be punished for their sins. And let me just close on this one thought. One thing that I wanted to be sure and bring up today is that there was a question that was asked to Jesus by one of his disciples. And that question was this, are there few that be saved? That's a good question, right? I mean, are most people saved? Or is it few that are saved? Now, who here thinks that most people are going to heaven? Most people in this world are going to heaven. Yeah, guess what the answer was? He said in Matthew 7, for example, he said, enter ye in at the straight gate. He said, because wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And then he went on to say this. He said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And so you see, there are people out there. First of all, the majority of this world doesn't even claim to believe in Jesus. Thankfully, the majority of this classroom claims to believe in Jesus, okay? But the majority of the world does not claim to believe in Jesus. But God warned that even amongst those who claim to believe in Jesus, even amongst those that call him Lord, many will be saying to him, what if all our, we did all these wonderful works, why aren't we saved? He's going to say, depart from me, I never you. That's, why, that's because salvation is not by works. And if you're trusting your own works to save you, if you think you're going to heaven because you've been baptized, or if you think you, well, I think you have to live a good life. I think you have to keep the commandments to be saved. I think you have to go to church. I think you got to, you know, turn from your sins. You know, if you're trusting in your works, Jesus is going to say to you one day, depart from me, I never knew you. You have to have all your faith in what he did. 
You have to put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross when he died for you, he's buried and rose again. That's your ticket into heaven. If you're trusting all the things, oh, I'm going to heaven because I'm such a good Christian and I do all these wonderful things. He's going to say, depart from me. And notice what he said. Depart from me, I never knew you. Not I used to know you. Because once he knows you, remember I mentioned this earlier, it's everlasting, it's eternal. Once he knows you, you're saved forever. But he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because if you go to hell, it's because he never knew you. Because once he knows you, he knows you. It's just like my children will always be my children. You know, when you're born again, when you're his child, you'll always be his child. You may be the black sheep of the family. You know, you may be uh, somebody who gets disciplined by God heavily on this earth. You can screw up your life down here, but you can't screw that up. You know, you're saved. It's a done deal. And so that's the main thing that I wanted to present to you about the end times. And we do have just a few minutes for uh, questions about either uh, salvation or about the end times.